You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. Quick quiz to kick off the episode today, Wade. Given this quote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for, do you agree with the first half of the quote, the second half, or both? You know, Kevin, if I'm speaking from the perspective of a David Fincher film, I would say none. Uh, Well, we're going to be looking at 11 of those films today, so uh, buckle in. We'll see how uh, bleak this gets. Listeners, we continue our 2020 auteur series with a look at the films of David Fincher. From reverse aging Brad Pitts to serial killers to socially maladjusted computer nerds, we've got a little bit of everything on episode 246 of Seeing and Believing. We are here, episode 246 of Seeing and Believing. Kevin, we're hoping that things get back to normal here soon, or as normal as they can get back to. And we're hoping that we're gonna find ourselves in movie theaters here in the near future. Uh, But for now, we're gonna take a look back at some films from individuals who are coming out with new films in 2020, and just, just kind of envisioning that future day when we can all sit down together in a movie theater and uh, hang out and and watch a film. Yeah, here's hoping that the directors that we've been talking about over the course of this multi-episode series that have films coming out in the latter half of 2020, fingers crossed that those films actually come out in the latter half of 2020. (laughs) If not, people can just re-listen to this episode when those films uh, do come out. We had a chance to talk about Christopher Nolan, week one, Kelly Reichert, week two. And on this week's episode of Seeing and Believing, we continue our 2020 auteur series by examining the films of David Fincher. Fincher's career began in the 1980s with a director making a name for himself as a music video director. Over the course of a decade, Fincher rubbed shoulders with Rick Springfield, Madonna, Paula Abdul, and Sting, before being handed the director's mantle for 1992's Alien 3. Since then, Fincher has generated something of a cult following, producing films like Seven and Fight Club, which have wormed their way into society's collective imagination. Fincher is known mostly for his mood, atmosphere, and bleak, dark humor. Often, he explores the underbelly of life, probing themes like alienation, greed, the nature of evil, and masculinity. As a result, many viewers will find his films somewhat disturbing. Fincher is no stranger to violence, and the sexual acts portrayed in his movies often reflect the darkness surrounding his characters. With Fincher's 12th feature film, Mank, gearing up for a Netflix release later this year, Kevin and I will be ranking the filmmaker's projects and hopefully coming to terms with the themes, ideas, and stylistic choices embedded in his work. I'm going to go ahead and start with my 11th film, and as I list each pick, Kevin will respond by sharing where that specific movie lands on his list. Kevin, are you ready to hop into this? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay, so... We are purists here on Seeing and Believing, (laughs) and we watched all of Fincher's feature films, 
And we started with the 1985 documentary. It's a live concert film called Rick Springfield, The Beat of the Live Drum. Now, this is one of those movies that just automatically hit that 11 spot for me, Kevin. There's nothing all that special, I think, about this live concert. It's it's very 80s. Um, I was watching this, though, <laughs> and, and it's a good reminder uh, that I think all artists, they begin somewhere. And as I'm reflecting on Fincher's work in the music industry, I wonder, Kevin, if it helped him to hone his abilities as an editor, and I'll talk more about that later, and perhaps even educated him on rhythm and music cues within his movies. Because I think that there is a natural rhythm to many of Fincher's films. And he doesn't feature very often uh, an actual song or songs in his films. Uh, His music cues are very, very good. Um, So it's fascinating to watch this and then to think about where he went. So number 11, uh, the Rick Springfield documentary, The Beat of the Live Drum. Yeah, I mean, I am glad that we watched this as part of our Fincher retrospective because, you know, he gets so much attention now. He's kind of almost this prestige director. His films are so visually immaculate. He gets a lot of attention, especially for, like you said in your introduction, his look at the dark side of human nature. Uh, so much so that it's kind of easy to forget sometimes that he got his start as a director working on music videos and kind of cutting his teeth on finding ways to marry music and image together in engaging ways. So it was nice to have that as part of this project, even though, you know, if looking at this documentary from a purely auteurist standpoint, it's not like we're seeing a whole lot of pet fincher themes or visual motifs show up in what's a pretty straightforward uh, feature documentary. I put this at my number eight for a couple of reasons. Uh, First, it's because the films that are below it are films that I just, I really do not like at all. (laughs) And this isn't a bad film. It's just sort of a a very workmanlike bit of work. The other reason is that I do think that Fincher, even though this is pretty much uh, workmanlike, as I said, there were some images that he chose to include as part of this footage in the final product that I think are really engaging and that you wouldn't necessarily see from just any director. And maybe a good encapsulation of that is a shot that keeps recurring, uh, at least, especially at the beginning, with a, a blimp that's sort of flying over the the arena where Rick Springfield, this 80s rock god, is performing. And it's funny that Fincher cuts away from this rock god in his prime playing to a bunch of people who are literally waving their zippos in the air, which, you know, we're not going to make any judgments about the musical taste of this huge crowd. But he cuts away to this blimp that's showing this gigantic screen with Rick Springfield's face on it. And he keeps cutting back to it as the blimp slowly flies over the arena and is lost off the left side of the frame. And now I know there's something about that choice of image that was a little bit overbearing. It's a little bit like there's this giant bit of technology floating over everyone's heads and Fincher kind of likes to watch it proceed 
off the screen rather than focusing on the the rock star strutting his stuff on stage. I just found that very interesting, and it was good enough to bump it up above the uh, the Fincher films that I really don't think work very well. I I, I am a, a fan of Fincher's work, and I, I like many of his films, uh, most of them actually, and it's just so surprising to see this as number eight on your list. There are some fascinating stylistic choices, and in the background of that concert scene, you've got you've got the crowd, you've kind of got the stadium, and you have the city in the back. And the way that it the way that it's shot, it looks like that city is is placed there uh, digitally somehow. And it brings to mind also the power of the city, a population, a place in Fincher's later work. And yeah, there are there are some really interesting images throughout uh, the special. I'm just I'm just kind of surprised it's number eight for you. <laughs> I mean, like I said, it's partly just because Fincher is one of those directors that I have a tendency to run hot and cold on. Some of his films I really think are tremendous. Others of his films I just really do not like at all, and we'll probably uh, get into those pretty soon here. But, you know, the Rick Springfield documentary, it's not a film that I would necessarily return to again, but it's not a film that I came away from with a bad taste in my mouth. Well, and I will direct listeners to Amazon Prime. Uh, That film, Rick Springfield, The Beat of the Live Drum is currently streaming if you want to check out David Fincher and some of his earlier work. I want to move on to number 10. And Kevin, I think I pronounce this movie Alien 3, or is it Alien Cubed? I, I've always said Alien <laughs> 3, but I just want to make sure I get it right. Alien to the Alien raised to the third power. Uh, I think <laughs> any of them are, are valid. I, I kind of like Alien Cubed. I think we should go with that. <laughs> okay, okay. So Alien Cubed, the 1992 uh, debut feature, if we're not counting the documentary, uh, is my number 10. This is a bad script, Kevin. And I I wouldn't even say the action sequences are directed well in this movie. I'm not a huge fan of it, especially when you can turn on Alien and watch a great horror film and you can watch Aliens and get a great action film. I, I don't know where Alien 3 kind of places in that world. And so as a result, I've, I've seen this one time there are a number of arresting (laughs) images and even though fincher has himself disowned this movie i think some of the mood does work and i think some of the ideas in this film they do work and particularly as you arrive at this planet it's this uh, this prison planet And so while I'm not a huge fan of Alien 3, I do want to acknowledge there are some people who really love this movie. Uh, It just doesn't work all that well for me. Here are the facts. At 0800 hours, prisoner Murphy, through carelessness on his part, was found dead in vent shaft 17. He seems to have been sucked into a ventilator. (laughs) At about 2100 hours, Prisoner Golic reappeared in a deranged state. Prisoners Boggs and Reigns are missing. There seems to be a good chance that they have met with foul play at the hands of Prisoner Golic. 
We need to organize and send out a search party. Volunteers will be a priesthood. I think it's fair to say that our smoothly running facility has suddenly developed a few problems. I can only hope we are able to all pull together over the next few days until the rescue team arrives for Lieutenant Ripley. It's here. You got Clemens. Stop this Ravy at once. I'm Stop telling it. you. It's here. Just here and get that foolish woman back to the infirmary. Yeah, I this is this is not a good film. This is one of those one of those films that I think is pretty poor and I I also have it at my number 10 slot and to be fair to to Fincher, this was kind of a half-baked project from the get-go. Uh, reportedly, the screenplay wasn't even finished when they had to begin shooting, so he wasn't really working with the best material to to start with. Uh, that said, I just don't think that really anything about this film works, or very few things about this film work anyway. I I think that. Visually, it looks so much worse than the original Alien, just in terms of the visuals, the production design. All of it just seems kind of anonymous in a way that Ridley Scott's original doesn't. And that's just almost mind-boggling to consider, given that Fincher was working with a much higher budget and had, you know a lot like what a decade over a decade of film technology to draw on while creating this film and yet it just looks really bad the action sequences are just kind of limp and perfunctory and uh it's it just doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of tension to the aliens when you show up you know they're going to come and when they do show up they just don't have the same kind of menace or old school movie monster magic that the first two alien films have. So yeah, this is almost bottom of the barrel for me. It's sad to say. And I'm glad that you pointed out that there is, there are some elements of this movie that I think are Fincher's fault at, you know, as a director. And he's very green at this point. This is his first film outside of, you know, documentary and then music videos. And so you can kind of expect that. Uh, But there's also a sense that, hey, maybe junk going around behind the scenes affected this movie. There is a great image, and it's the iconic image, Kevin, of Sigourney Weaver as she's kind of leaning against the wall, and that alien face comes up next to hers. Uh, and that's visually striking. And like I said, there are so many people that just really love this movie. I just have I've never you know gravitated towards it. Uh, moving on to my number nine. This is one of those movies that I feel like falls to the bottom of many Fincher lists, and that is the 2011 movie The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Now, this is the English-language adaptation of Larson's best-selling novel, and it was supposed to be the next big thing. It's a dark and twisty mystery that's difficult to watch at times, almost impossible uh, to watch at, at times. I, I will say this. I like this film more than most people i found it chilling uh, not just the the visual uh, chills of the snow uh, but 
just the atmosphere is chilling. I found it to be compelling. At the same time, I'm not sure that I'm going to ever see it again. I don't have a desire to see it again. It's also worth noting, Kevin, that Fincher uses biblical references, and the book does this as well, to examine humanity's sinful nature. It's at the very least set dressing. This is a story about predator and prey, and we're going to get more biblical references in Fincher's films. And going back and just kind of thinking through them, I'm surprised at how many references to God and the Bible and the Old Testament that we get in his movies. And we definitely see that here. It's a story about violence committed against women. Um, It doesn't always work, but I will say this. It certainly produces an emotional response. And when we get to the end of this movie, legitimately, I think it's very, very scary, very frightening. And so it does work on some levels. Uh, I didn't walk away saying I hated this movie, um, but I didn't exactly love this movie. <laughs> I hated this movie. I'll just come right out now, and now say you just it. watched it's, it's it, It's my right? number 11. Yeah, I watched it just before uh, starting recording with you. And I just, I think that Fincher in some ways is, is, doing his best with this material, sort of muscle it into something uh, more substantial than it really is. I I don't know that the... I, I didn't finish the, the source material. I tried to read it, and something about it just didn't really engage me. And I think the largest sin with this film is that it there's so much there that feels like it's there for shock value, and yet there's not a whole lot of humanity in this picture that really engages me beyond just kind of a storytelling mechanic standpoint. So to contrast this with Seven, which we'll uh, obviously be getting to in a little bit, Seven is another film that you know deals with uh, themes of religious fanaticism, uh, with uh, violence against uh, women and against all sorts of people. Uh, there is uh, themes of serial killing um, in it. There's definitely a dark streak that runs through both films. And yet there's a meaning to all of those elements in Seven that just does not seem to be present in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. It just it seems like it's a lot of icing, but no cake, if that makes sense. And I think especially given the extremity of some of the content of this film, I don't think that the payoff nearly justifies what the audience is asked to subject themselves to with this film. And frankly, I, I think it's it's a it's a film with no heart. And by that, I don't mean that's a film that fails to make you have all the emotions. I think it's a film that just genuinely doesn't have much of a perspective on the human characters in its story or in the sins that they commit. And and I, so I did read the book and the central mystery kind of putters out. And I, I don't like the resolution to that. I, I get what you're saying about the shocking content. And I think that 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 is there for a reason. I think it's there in the book for a reason. I think we are supposed to be shocked and appalled by that. But I also do understand where you're coming from in that there has to be this 
um, this humanity, a humanity connection point, if that's the best way to say it, probably not. But we need to connect in a way that's not just, hey, this is bad, here's the story, and we're done. Um, now, I will say this. I, I think some of the, the, the difficult parts of this film uh, do work in that they they achieve what they're supposed to do and just make you feel kind of horrible about this and and understand hey it's in the world and it, the world is a bad place and that's kind of where it ends and you know to some degree it works yeah i i guess what i'm looking for in this film is i need the ang- the the anguish of brad pitt that we see in the in the final act of 7 I need that in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and I just don't find it. And I guess that's kind of, that's where I stand. Needs more boxes. I will say that. Needs more boxes in this (laughs) film. (laughs) Um, Moving on to my number eight. Uh, This is a film that it's, it's kind of fascinating. There are huge fans of this film. It's the 1997 movie The Game. Let me give you the official synopsis for those of you who are not familiar with it. After a wealthy banker played by Michael Douglas is given an opportunity to participate in a mysterious game, his life is turned upside down when he becomes unable to distinguish between the game and reality. Now, that story is going to make some people kind of frustrated or irritated. It's a twisty story. It actually makes me feel pretty claustrophobic. I feel locked in this story, and I I think that's part of the atmosphere. I think that's part of the mood. I think that's part of the cinematography. And for better or for worse, uh, that's what I walked away with. I, I was thinking about how in Fincher's movies, most of his characters do not change across his movies. And if they do change, they don't change for the better. They get worse. And we can kind of work through that even in you know, Seven, or even in Ben Affleck's character in in Gone Girl, uh, you could look at Mark Zuckerberg across a social network, the social network, and they they get worse. They succumb to their vices. In this film, Michael Douglas's character does improve. He goes from jerk to to likable, somebody who has hope, and this character development is notable. Because Nicholas wonders if change is even possible, or is he bound to repeat the tragedies from his past? And so I see this, along with the uh, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, as the most hopeful of Fincher's movies, that change could be possible, that humanity can offer us hope and uh, a way out of this cycle. Now, we can get into the cycle of life when we talk about Benjamin Button, but uh, there's certainly hope and tenderness in that movie and in this movie. I like the film. I don't know if I love it. Um, I think the story might be somewhat of a one-trick pony, uh, but it definitely works on a number of different levels. Conrad, what a surprise. Happy birthday, Nicky. See more butts. I'll never get tired of that one. Why, it's a classic. This is a nice restaurant. They gave me a free jacket. I'm sure they're going to want it back. I remember being here a long time ago. Yeah, I took you here once. No, I used to buy crystal meth off the maitre d'. Oh, really? In college. Which college? Touche. Miss me? 
As much as that's possible, you look good. So do you. I think I was worried. Worried about me. How long has it been to, since Mom's funeral? Two, three years. Yeah, I think the game is interesting on a conceptual level. Uh, and I do like that it is sort of about as optimistic as you're going to get from Fincher, which, uh, you know, says something about the overall tenor of of his work. I think the problem for me with the game is that I think at base, especially with its ending, the story ends up to me feeling a little bit silly. Like, I, I don't I don't know that the eventual resolution that it reaches can really support all of the possibilities that Fincher has kind of been teasing us with throughout the earlier film. So I think it's it's ultimately unsuccessful for me. I know that there are some huge defenders of of this film, which makes me think, you know, maybe it's it's just a me thing. It, this might be kind of like 2001 A Space Odyssey, where every now and then I return to it thinking, okay, this is going to be the time where I kind of see what everyone else is seeing. Thus far, I haven't succeeded with with the game, and that's why I've got it at at my number nine. So the the third of the three films that did not beat out R- Rick Springfield for this list. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, I, I yeah, I, I I guess I like it uh, much better than you. There is a lot of setup here, and I it's difficult to work through some of those twists and walk away with. Something that's not just feel good, but something that feels satisfying. And I, yeah, I don't know if that exactly works for me either. Uh, Michael Douglas, he's he's great here, and it's kind of a twisty film. Like I said, a claustrophobic film, and it's it's fun to watch. I'm gonna move on to my number seven, and I mentioned this uh, film just a second ago, and that's 2008's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Now I watched this film when it first was released. It got you know, a ton of buzz. And I was not a huge fan of the movie. So I said, okay, I've definitely got to watch this. So there were a couple different movies that I watched or rewatched before the podcast. Uh, of course, the Springfield documentary, also Gone Girl, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and Fight Club. So this was kind of a full week for me. And I liked Benjamin Button more than I did originally. It, it really kind of jumped up in my perspective. Some people are going to call this the, you know, force gump in reverse, but I think Curious Case of Benjamin Button, uh, I think it's a much stronger film. And I think at the heart of this, uh, this is a film about outcasts. These are, this is a film about people who've been cast aside. And the character of Queenie, uh, she says, uh, you know, you're as ugly as an old fart, but you're still a child of God. And we see Benjamin Button. He's being raised in a nursing home. He was he was rescued. And this is where the quote-unquote unwanted go, where the people who have been forgotten about. And throughout the movie, we see images of people who've been kind of cast aside. And it's fascinating because Benjamin Button is able to have a a clear perspective on life because he was raised as one of those outcasts uh, and he lived life in reverse. At the same time, this is a film about death. It's a film about how life is, is fleeting and we need to enjoy those special moments when they're around. And I also found this to be a movie that, that yearns for a life after this one 
one where we'll never be separated by death, by disease, and by violence. And in some ways, I think this is kind of a tender film, unlike most of Fincher's other work. Now, not everything just kind of cuts through here. Um, I think Pitt's character might be a little too passive in the movie. Uh, Pitt, who always has such a great presence, he carries the movie along, but we need a little more action from him. And then sometimes the historical elements feel a bit forced. You know, they're in the Florida Keys and we see this rocket go off and we're like, okay, they're trying to tell us, you know, this is 1960s, uh, early 1970s. Um, but I think for the most part, you know, the curious case of Benjamin Dutton, Button is uh, successful and I, I liked it. I'm glad I had a chance to see it again. And what's this old man's addiction? He's got the devil on his back trying to ride him to the grave before his time. Out, Zeppi Car. Yes. Out, Diesel Bug. Yes. How old are you? Seven, but I look a lot older. God bless you. He's seven. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is a man with optimism in his heart. All right. Belief in his soul. Yes. We are all children in the eyes of God. Yes. We are going to get you out of that chair. And we going to have you walk. In the name of God's glory, rise up. Come on. Come on. Come on with us, son. Come on. Now, God is going to see you the rest of the way. He's going to see this little old man walk without the use of a crutch or a cane. He's going to see that you walk from faith to divine inspiration alone. All right. Now, walk. Come on. Yeah, this is a film that definitely has its flaws. There are, I mean, and, and to be fair to Fincher, this is a story that has such a a high concept that it would have been hard for any director to make work. Just the, the material is so odd and the relationships that this character cultivates over the course of the film are are also odd in their way and and not all of it entirely works i have a problem with uh benjamin button's relationship with the uh the women of the brothel uh during the early part of his life i was going to say his youth but that's not exactly correct for him and the the relationship the central relationship between his character and Daisy, the uh, the love interest played by Kate Blanchett, who's very good in this film, incidentally, is is also there's there's something about that that's just a little bit hard to buy, and that's kind of just part of the uh, the source material here. But I do really like how Fincher kind of takes a look at time and and the way this film deals with time is obviously you know going to be a central feature of it because it's essential it's about a person living through time almost in reverse it's kind of the same sort of character as th white's merlin you know who lives backwards through time while everyone else lives forwards that's a very engaging theme and i think fincher really does bring it home with that final shot 
of the flood finally coming into this warehouse and slowly rising over this abandoned clock face. It's such a wonderful image. And I think overall, the film does a pretty good job of really teasing out what what the passage of time and the loss that it brings can feel like and and the joys and tragedies that are bound up in it all all mixed together it doesn't entirely work but the parts of it that do work are good enough for me to feel confident that this is this is a flawed film but still on balance a pretty good one. I also have it at my number seven, so uh, we agree there for sure. <laughs> yeah, and you're right to say that there are some elements embedded in the story that just you're not going to get past, and it's just kind of strange. And um, yeah, I mean, can Fincher get over that? I mean, he tries his best. Um, ultimately, it's still a little weird, maybe even a little creepy. Um, but you know, that's that's what you have with a story like this, uh, Kevin. You know, four, five, and six for me are all very close, and uh, I I kind of had to just make a choice. My number six is probably Fincher's most well-known movie, and that's 1999's Fight Club. You know, I had a chance to watch this again, and it was strange because I watched this movie for the first time probably about 10 years ago. And I had heard so much about it. Of course, there are people starting fight clubs and people with the poster on their wall. And it kind of became known as this bro movie. And I watched it and just wasn't all that impressed. Uh, watched it again in preparation for the episode. And I did like it uh, much better. And... There's so many different ways to talk about this movie. Specifically, we could talk about the religious angle. You have a group of men who have been sold, you know, this lie in modernity. Uh, they are uh, consumers rather than creators, and they need to quote unquote wake up. And it's fascinating to see how these characters change their course. Now, of course, these individuals embrace this toxic masculinity, but when these characters kind of transition for the first time, you, you'll even get kind of monks chanting uh, the, this, this music in the background. Uh, it's almost like this religious experience. And then one character says, every evening I died and every evening I was born again. I was uh, I was resurrected because of these experiences they have. And then you have Brad Pitt's character. Um, he'll mention, you know, if our fathers bailed, what does that tell you about God? At another point, one character says the hysterical shouting with this fight club was in tongues like a Pentecostal church. Afterwards, we all felt saved. And what I appreciate about this movie is that it sees this hole or this problem with a with with the modern plight of humanity this way of erasing god and pushing us towards just products there are products everywhere in this movie and that we need some sort of religious experience 
And this religious experience is just getting, you know, for them, getting hit in the face and ultimately anarchy. Uh, so it's fascinating to really kind of delve into that. I'll also say I thought this movie was a whole lot funnier this time around. And one of my favorite parts is when Tyler, who's played by Brad Pitt, tells them all that, you know, their homework is to go out and start a fight with someone. And you've got the guy standing in front of the, um, I think it's a good year uh, shop and he's spraying people with a hose and he sprays a, a priest and he gets the priest to fight with him and the priest is punching him and it's just really, really funny. Um, a lot of different ways to talk about this movie and then we also maybe just talk about the reputation this movie has and where it's gone and what it was trying to say and what people think it's saying. It's just kind of a strange uh, a strange movie. It's a strange way to talk about it. But uh, yeah, number six, Fight Club, a film that I that I do really like. What do you want me to do? You just want me to hit you? Come on, do me just one favor. Why? Why? I don't know why. I don't know. Never been in a fight. You? No, but that that's a good thing. No, it is not. How much can you know about yourself? If you've never been in a fight. I don't want to die without any scars. So come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Oh, God, this is crazy. You should I, go I, crazy. Let her rip. I have Fight Club all, all the way up at my number four spot, and it's that high up because I think it really is a very clear snapshot of masculinity in modernity, as as you mentioned earlier. It's It does a great job of capturing what a lot of men, if not most men in America in the 90s, really were beginning to grapple with in terms of the 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 conflict between their urges to kind of be good upstanding responsible members of society and the void that that leaves when the pursuit of that becomes all consuming and they realize that it doesn't really fill or address some nagging emptiness that they feel inside. So they fill it with violence. They fill it with antisocial tendencies. They they fill it with a brotherhood of sorts, but a brotherhood that's built on something that's just completely and utterly toxic. I think Fincher does so well at capturing the allure of that, like how how cool it is. I mean, I went to college not long after this movie came out, and I knew guys in in my class at college who started their own fight clubs because for them, the the allure of having some sort of brotherhood, even one that was founded on violence, was so attractive to them. So I think that Fincher and uh, Chuck Palahniuk, the uh, novelist whose book the film is adapted from, I think they're really onto something with this film. If there's... A caveat to that I have, it's that I think Fincher does too good of a job maybe at making Brad Pitt's Tyler Durden so charismatic and so just stylish that the movie's critique is maybe dulled a little bit. It doesn't really work as well as a critique of this kind of masculinity as it does as a snapshot of it. And depending on your perspective, that could maybe be problematic. I think that it does work pretty well. Whether or not it's a responsible film is another question that 
could be an entire episode of the podcast all by itself. It's a very interesting film to think about nonetheless. I, I do kind of struggle with that with this movie. And I'll say this too, it's kind of, it's a heavy film. It's not one of those that I, that I would naturally gravitate towards. And I know people who just, you know, love to watch this movie over and over again. And, and that, that to me is a little strange, but watching this film and I grew up with brothers and we wrestled and we, we fought all the time. Sometimes for fun, a lot of times because we were angry at each other. Uh, now, we didn't punch each other in the face. That was kind of off limits, but we did have body shots. And I'm watching this film <laughs> this week, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, like, you know, you, you kind of you miss just kind of going at it with somebody. Um, not trying to physically, like, destroy them, but just kind of that, that physical, you know, letting out some aggression. And then, I, you know, stopping myself and saying, well, you know, you know way that that's that's not good and that actually fueled anger rather than than took anger away and so that becomes kind of problematic because it does feel kind of it feels kind of cool um as you're watching that and as you mentioned kevin tyler's character is so charismatic um you can't help but want to and not look up to him but just be in his proximity and that's part of the film's allure, and I think that's part of the reason why it's been such a cult classic. Um, but it also could be part of a problem. I would I would direct listeners to uh, check out Brian Raftery's book, Best Movie Year Ever. He was on the show. I think we mentioned, we talked a little bit about Fight Club, uh, but he describes this movie as kind of this middle finger to the world. And uh, I would encourage listeners go check out the chapter on Fight Club in his book to dig into this some more. Um, but it's definitely, uh, you know, great to talk about. Kevin, we've gotten through six. We have five more to go. I I know there are a number of movies. I think there was just one of your movies uh, from your bottom six that made your top five. Um, so a number of movies left to go. I'm excited to see where where we land. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Um, I'm I'm curious to see how this this shakes out, especially as we get up towards the top. Listeners, don't go anywhere. We're going to be ranking films one through five on our respective David Fincher lists. Listeners, we're going to get back to our David Fincher list here in a moment. We want to thank everyone who's taken an opportunity to support us via our Patreon campaign. It's super simple. We have a number of different donation levels. And Kevin, you know, we've been talking about it, and I think probably our favorite donation level is the what can you buy for $5 level. A lot of great perks. And uh, that leads to the question, what what could you buy for, for five bucks? Uh, $5 would get you a mod to the original Oregon Trail game, only it's a Kelly Reichert version. So instead of, you know, hunting for bears and fighting off dysentery, you just sort of uh, get on a wagon train to sort of go in circles through the trackless wilderness of the American West. Wow. No, I I think that's a great, I think it's a great price. The only problem is you have to have, <laughs> was it the original Apple computer uh, to be able to play that game? <laughs> and that might cost you a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. I, are, are those prob- are those collector's items at this point or are mm. they junk? It's kind of hard to tell with 
technology these days, but I don't know, five bucks would it, for just the game would leave you with plenty of cash left over to win any bidding wars over those Apple IIe's that you might run across these days. Yeah, well... It's definitely something to explore, listeners. If you want to put your $5 to our podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Like I said, we very much appreciate it. It helps us to keep this thing going and also get the word out on seeing and believing. Yeah, we also very much appreciate those of you listeners who take the time to uh, write in to us, let us know your thoughts, let us know what you're, you're watching. You can always email or tweet us as we've said earlier. And I don't know, Wade, maybe the reason that the $5 offering that I came up with for this week was the way it was is I had Meek's cutoff on the brain from last week's Kelly Reichert episode. And listener Jonathan Crump apparently had it on the brain as well because he wrote us an email about his thoughts on the film. He writes, Hey guys, I am a big fan of the show and I was glad to see that you reviewed Kelly Reichert's films because I have not seen anything from her before. I watched Meek's cutoff and really enjoyed it. The film portrayed the planes as well as any film I've seen. The way it swallows sound, its deception with distance, and its endlessness. I really like that description. The The way the film swallows sounds, definitely agree that that is a standout aspect of the film. Jonathan goes on to draw some pretty interesting parallels between uh, Meek, the expedition leader in the film, and Jesus, and the way that Reichert implies a contrast between them. He finishes by saying, This is Reichert condemning the manifest destiny mentality of our country's early years that was so destructive to Native Americans and was widely adopted by people who, like the characters in this film, claimed to be believers in the peaceful Jesus. With this film, Reichert forces us to ask ourselves, which desert leader are we following? The meek and mild Jesus Christ or the violent and prideful Stephen Meek? Thank you so much for this podcast. It has introduced me to so many new and wonderful films. Thanks so much for those words, Jonathan, and for taking the time to uh, write that interesting discussion. We like to say on the show that one of the things we like to hear the most is that we help people find some wonderful films they might not have found Otherwise, so your feedback meant a lot. Yes, listeners, you can always contact us. Just do so on Twitter at CBeliefPod, at CBeliefPod, or through email, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We love all of your notes, and it helps us to think about these films uh, maybe in a way we haven't thought about them before, so keep them coming. Once again, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com, or on Twitter, C-Believe-Pod. C-Believe-P-O-D. We are back. We're going to be working through David Fincher's films, and we are at one through five of our respective lists. So we're going to begin at number five. Kevin, I'm going to go first again and then kind of let you follow. But as our listeners have been tracking, uh, we have a number of films that will overlap in this section. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Starting us out at number five is Fincher's 1995 film, Seven. I put it at number five, Kevin, because it's one of those movies that not only is it um, (laughs) embedded in our collective consciousness, as I mentioned about many of of Fincher's movies, uh, but it's one that's kind of embedded in my mind. This is a disturbing movie, and it's filled with a number of disturbing people. 
but it does possess a moral compass. Here's what I mean when I say that. As with many of Fincher's films, they're all looking for a way out of modernity's moral sickness. And I think that many of Fincher's films, especially this one, Seven, illustrate what we as Christians would call total depravity, or someone might say even original sin. With its nondescript city and perpetual reign, this film represents a world where evil is kind of visualized in the very look and the feel of the environment. I appreciate the, the mystery here, Kevin. And when we get to that stunning conclusion, right, when we find out what's in the box, um, it's just gut-wrenching. And we see a world that's searching for hope but wondering, is there a true north? Uh, is, is there hope? And uh, Fincher doesn't always believe that, or at least he seems like he doesn't always believe that. And once again, too, with Seven, a, a number of Christian biblical references in this movie, it's framed around the seven deadly sins. Uh, so we can uh, kind of work from there, but that's just kind of a, a fascinating way to frame this story about murder and death and even sin. This is a film that is so disturbing that I keep thinking that it's more violent than it actually is. Kind of in in my mental picture of the film, like, oh, there's just such awful things that we see in this film. And it is very disturbing. We do see some pretty disturbing things. But I think what I admire about this film is that Fincher manages to evoke that transgressiveness without luxuriating it in it wallowing in it rubbing our noses in it he there's a surprising amount of restraint in a such a kind of a grimy pulpy uh serial killer story which you don't often think of that genre as one of restraint and yet fincher really does a great job of building this atmosphere that is just so um uh, almost spiritually oppressive as the detectives get drawn into the the inner world of this killer who keeps leaving them these grisly uh crime scenes to find we kind of get drawn into it with them to the point that when we get to the end we're we're as uh at our, our almost at our wits end as Brad Pitt's character is and I think it's that transgressiveness that makes this film feel kind of essential in the way that it makes makes us not just see evil, but also really feel the the oppressiveness of of evil in this film. And that's thrown into just even sharper relief by the fact that the this killer's crimes are based on uh, those seven deadly sins that are mentioned in the Bible, not mentioned, they're not named as a seven deadly sin, but the, they, that biblical underpinning of the tale really makes this film feel like more than just kind of a crazy killer story. It feels like Fincher is really tapping into something spiritual in telling a film that is basically as nihilistic as this is. And I think that's, that's something to, be really fascinated by the fact that a nihilistic film can yet make us feel the the need for god in some way and you know as i'm as i'm talking about as we both talked about fight club and this kind of search for transcendence in our world it's fascinating to see the connection points between that and seven in that 
evil is not just a product of people doing bad stuff. It's not just the product of a crazy person, but there's this spiritual root to evil in seven. It's more than just natural, right? And I think that's what's fascinating about many of Fincher's stories is that he's looking for the foundation. And I mentioned this, you know, nondescript, grimy, rainy city. This is set in the real world, but it's also almost a mythical tale. Uh, if you will. And it's essentially saying that the world around us uh, isn't uh, just made up of flesh and bone. There's something kind of deeper driving us and compelling us forward. So yeah. And so before I, I move on to the next film, Kevin, uh, this, what number was this? So it was five for me. And what number was this for you? Oh yeah, I guess I was so excited to talk about its transgressiveness that I forgot to actually say uh, where I ranked it. I actually do have it at the same spot on my list as well, uh, number five. It's it's definitely in his top half for sure, and has a lot to recommend it. Yeah, okay, that's that. So we've agreed twice. So it's not like last week where our Kelly Reichert ranking was the same, um, but we do agree a little bit. Uh, so that's good. My number four is another film that I rewatched uh, this past week. It's from 2014. It's Gone Girl. And this is really close to seven. It's really close to Fight Club. We could kind of mix these up and, and be fine. The film, which follows the disappearance of a suburban housewife, played by Rosamund Pike, ends with this line. It's narrated by her husband, who's played by Ben Affleck. What have we done to each other? What will we do? And this line, it's really just the story in general, begs the question, what is Gone Girl about? Is it about marriage? Is it about the economy? Is it about America, the American dream? Is it about the media? And the truth is, it might just be about all of those things. It's this entire modern world moving forward. So if Fight Club speaks to the late 1990s, Gone Girl speaks to the media and social media boom of the uh, 2010s. I, I also love how, Kevin, this film interacts with Hitchcock. And I think the I think the biggest you know pointer here is that the Hitchcock blonde gets to have her say in the story. There's also a sense of kind of this vertigo connection where men are trying to remake Pike's character, and she is uh, diabolical, um, but she has agency in the the film. And I, I would also say. You know, this is one of those, it's kind of a nasty film, right? It, it's disturbing, but it's just kind of mean in a lot of ways. And it speaks to rampant individualism and this identity that's, I don't know, it's kind of tied up in consumerism and occupation. So we see once again the connection points with Fight Club. It presents a world too that's spiritually empty. And there is a moral black hole in the lives of almost every character. You're hard-pressed to find a character who is good in this film, perhaps the lead detective in the movie, and uh, and that's about it. And I appreciate this film. It, it's, it just gives me a lot to think about. And um, 
the style, the tone, everything, you know, Fincher just, I think he really nails it here. So you got to the bar around 11 today. Where were you before that, just to cross that off? Well, I was home. I left at 9.30, got a cup of coffee, newspaper. I went to Sawyer Beach and read the news. Did you visit with anyone there? Well, I mean, I kind of go to Sawyer Beach for the solitude. So your wife has no friends here. Is she kind of standoffish? Ivy League, rubs people the wrong way. She's from New York. She's complicated. She's got very high standards. Type A. Well, that can make you crazy if you're not like that. You seem pretty laid back. Type B. Speaking of which, Amy's blood type. God, I don't know. I have to look it up at the house. You don't know if she has friends. You don't know what she does all day. And you don't know your wife's blood type. Sure, y'all are married. One thing I really like about some of Fincher's films is the way that he's able to use his camera to really make you question the allegiances that you've built up in his film up to that point. The And especially in Gone Girl, so much of this film is taken up in having the, the viewer's loyalties shift from character to character as more information is revealed, not just in terms of you know, what's in the screenplay, but also just in the way that Fincher chooses to shoot his characters. The Gone Girl, of course, you know, there's that opening shot of Rosamund Pike's Amy Dunn, and then there's that same shot that recurs later in the film. It's the, the angle is just ever so slightly different. It's not all that different. It's not the exact same shot, though. And that very slightly different shot of her juxtaposed with what we know of her at that point in the film as opposed to what we assumed of her earlier in the film is the entire point of Gone Girl. The fact that do you, when, you, when you look at other people, do you really see other people? How is a shift in perspective, whether it's a character's point of view or the camera's point of view, how does that affect the way you see another person? How does the media affect the way you see a person? What assumptions are you making about the people around you at all times that are essentially invisible to you? And that's something that Fincher really digs into with with Gone Girl. I have it at, at my number six, mainly because I I do think that I, I kind of wish that it almost hadn't surrendered to some of the pulpiness as fully as it does. The the fate of Neil Patrick Harris's character Desi is I think it's too much. <laughs> it's it's too much. It's too it's too lurid, I guess. It's lurid in a way that I think the rest of the film really isn't. And I think that that's an unfortunate flaw in what otherwise is a very engaging look at uh, the the assumptions we make of other people, secrets that people hide from each other, and maybe the secrets that they choose not to hide from each other. <laughs> ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike in this in this film are kind of like a match made in hell, and I think they're a really interesting match. Yeah, no, I, I get what you say about Neil Patrick Harris's character, and that that might be probably the only flaw for me in this movie. Uh, ben Affleck, I mean. You know, he's really good here. He is, he's a guy that you're, you're kind of on his side. You don't know what to think about him, but you're like, dude, you're so, you're so dumb. You're so dumb. And he plays that character great while at the same time, like we still, we still think he's bad, but we, we want 
justice to be served. Maybe that's the best way, uh, you know, to say it. You kind of expect him to, you start off kind of being honest, like, oh, you know, he's just trying to, to find out what happened to his wife. And then you go to, you know, once you learn more about him, you, you get to start to hate him, and then you find out what's actually happening to him due to Amy Dunn's machinations, and then you kind of start feeling sorry for him again. It's just a really, it's a masterclass in how Fincher is able to manipulate the audience's sympathies. Mm. He plays us like a fiddle. Yeah, no, no, that's uh, that, that's a great way to explain it. Uh, so Gone Girl's at my number four. Okay, so I'm going to move on to my number three, and this is one of those films that Kevin it's not talked about a lot when we're discussing you know Fincher's movies most people are and I thought it was going to be low on your list um towards the back end and you thought it was going to be towards the back end on my list but it's up there for both of us and that's the 2002 film Panic Room. Now, Panic Room begins with a fairly predictable synopsis. A divorced woman and her diabetic daughter take refuge in their newly purchased house's safe room, where three men break in searching for a missing fortune. What we get, however, is anything but humdrum. Panic Room is its thrilling, it's an intense, and it's a provocative movie that also grapples with economic disparity, as with many of Fincher's films. Notice how Fincher, across many of his movies, connects evil and inequality together. And I think there's this reason the Bible warns us so much about greed. It blackens our hearts. It causes us to trample other people. It creates these these ripples throughout time. We see ripples uh, in small decisions with the curious case of Benjamin Button. But here we see greed and its ripples. The cast is amazing. Uh, Jodie Foster is incredible. The young Kristen Stewart, she is great. And I also think Forrest Whitaker, who is underutilized in Hollywood today, turns in maybe one of his best performances here in in Panic Room. Do it. Yeah, me and a couple... Excuse me. The police are on their way. She's lying. You're full of sh- It's not an intercom. It's a PA system. I know. I'm just scaring her. I suggest you leave before they get here. Wow, yeah, that's uh, pretty pretty impressive. I, I don't disagree that Forrest Whitaker is great in Panic Room. And I think talking about him is a good way to talk about one reason why I have this all the way up at my number two. I, this was one of the gaps that I, I filled in in preparation for this episode, and I was frankly kind of blown away by how good Panic Room is. And I talked at length about how Gone Girl does such a great job of manipulating audience sympathies and kind of causing you to question who you're rooting for and why you're rooting for them. And I think the strength of Panic Room is that Fincher takes what could be a very rote home invasion story. You know, they're the the 
the audience surrogates, the good guys who are trapped in the panic room, and then there's the evil home invaders who are there to, you know, to rough them up and to steal from them, and they're just the bad guys, and you want to root against them. And I think Fincher, through his casting decisions, Forrest Whitaker, but uh, also uh, Jared Leto and Dwight Yoakam as the other two uh, invaders, it's really cannily cast in a way to sketch these criminals as they're as as fully rounded people as well. You get to know them every bit as well as the two uh, main characters trapped inside the panic room. And this has the effect of causing you, as the film goes on, to question, well, do we do we want the tables to be turned on them to the extent? that they do get turned on them. When when the when the time comes for Jodie Foster's character to find a way to reverse the stakes a little bit and to kind of mete out some righteous justice, in a lesser film you kind of expect that to be the the audience pleasing moment where finally the the woman uh takes back the power to take from her and she's going to really just wreak some vengeance on the bad guys. And I think this film it is satisfying when that happens, but Fincher does a great job of humanizing the criminals so that when their comeuppance does seem nigh, you're kind of questioning, do I really want to see them get <laughs> get punished as severely as they probably are? When uh, Jodie Foster kind of says, it's going to come to that as violence is going to break out. You kind of you, you almost don't want it to come to that point. You don't necessarily want to see Forrest Whitaker and and the rest really get what's coming to, to to them. And I think the fact that Fincher is able to kind of play with that and cause you to question the societal forces at play, the personal forces at play that brought these criminals to this point. It, it, it's a really great way to make you question a lot of the conventions of the thriller that you don't always question, that most Hollywood movies don't make you confront. And I think that that plus the just the masterful directing that Fincher does in this physical space is enough to make me put this all the way at number two. It's up, it's, it's up there with the best of Hitchcock, frankly. I think it's just a, a wonderful... Uh, entertaining but thought-provoking thriller. Yeah, number number two is really high in terms of Fincher's filmography, and you know <laughs> I, I thought I had it high at three. No, no one's no one's more surprised than me. I didn't expect it to be up this high either. But hey, there you are. You know you have you have to give it up when the film is strong. You gotta recognize when it's great. Yeah, game is it game recognizes game. Is that how it is? <laughs> I, I I would say that, except I have no game, so it seemed presumptuous to put it that way. And you know, we were talking about this, and it'd say, you know, why is this one of his lesser known movies uh, per people who usually talk about Fincher films? And my guess is that it is a little more straightforward, and it is a little more mainstream. If we're talking about, especially his first uh, decade. Th- Outside of the Alien movie, this is probably the most mainstream of his filmography. And maybe even, I mean, I guess Social Networking, you know, is, is pretty mainstream. Uh, but, you know, this just feels a little more conventional on the surface. And perhaps, you know, that's the reason why. Uh, okay, Kevin, we're getting into my number two. So you, we just heard your number two, uh, which was 
Panic Room. And my number two is a film we've talked about before. It's 2007's Zodiac. Now, Zodiac was my number one film of 2007 when we talked about that great cinema year on episode 112. Zodiac follows two San Francisco police inspectors, played by Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards, respectively, as well as San Francisco Chronicle crime reporter Paul Avery, played by Robert Downey Jr., and the paper's cartoonist Robert Graysmith, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Over the course of the film, these groups launch their own investigation into the Zodiac killings, those murders that occurred during the 60s and 70s in the Bay Area. After the murderer begins mailing letters to the newspapers in the San Francisco area. I wrote something for Brightwall Dark Room for the film's 10-year anniversary, and I might have read this before, but I think this gives a good idea of what I think about the movie and kind of the big idea of this film. What I didn't get during my first viewing of Zodiac, but now realize this, is that the film is best understood when it's examined through the lens of society's elusive relationship with truth and justice. Fincher evaluates contemporary society's obsession with certainty by highlighting our willingness to shed the bounds of due process to obtain it, then in turn contributing our actions back into the plight of justice itself. We believe that evil can be rooted out with the correct dose of technology, paperwork, and library books. Now think about all of these true crime podcasts that have come out as of late. Uh, We believe we can figure it out. I then go on to write this, Zodiac is one of the better, if not best, crime dramas in post-9-11 American cinema. Amid our current civic landscape, Fincher's masterpiece might even be the defining film of the now-teenage millennium. In a world where swift retaliation is welcomed over careful, nuanced investigation, Zodiac blurs the line between our knowledge of guilt and innocence good and evil. And I read that because I I still hold true to those words and I figured I'd just type them out and uh, hopefully communicate what I love about this movie. This film gets into the nitty gritty of criminal investigations to the point that we see times and dates down to the minute on screen when these inspectors are investigating uh, the murder. I watched this movie, Kevin, and it makes me long for justice. I also know that true justice won't happen without a savior. And we're talking about the spiritual implications in Fincher's work, and I think he realizes that, that on this earth, the way things are going, justice will in some ways always be elusive. Um, I also want to point out, too, Fincher, who's known for some of his more violent fares, there is little violence in this movie. And it's as if he's taking his own conventions and his own reputation and kind of twisting them upside down. Uh, Yeah, it's a great film. I could go on and on about it, and I'm sure our listeners know how much I I love it. But yeah, number two, uh, the (laughs) 2007 film Zodiac. Do you remember his name? No, but it was right after the murder at the lake. And what did you tell this officer? I told him that I'd gone to Salt Point that weekend to skin dive that I was alone, but I met a couple there. I have their names at home if you want. That would be great, Arthur. Lee. What? Lee. Nobody calls me Arthur. 
Also, that day when I came home, my neighbor saw me. It was around four, but I forgot to tell the other officer that. Neighbor's name? Bill White. He died a week or so afterwards. Heart attack, so I didn't think to call to follow up. The knives I had in my car with the blood on them, that blood came from a chicken that I killed for dinner. What? I had knives in my car that weekend. Maybe Bill saw them and called the other officer on me. Yeah, I have this at, at my number three. It's definitely a really strong picture, and I, I like it for all of the reasons that you suggested. I especially like what you say about the longing for justice that it evokes. I think of the final shot of Jake Gyllenhaal in this movie is he just he just gazes steadily at somebody and then walks away. And in that moment, you it, it, it's not a move it's it's not the sort of re- resolution that we all want, right? Like we all kind of wish that the Zodiac killer could have been found, that the mystery could have been solved, that that some sort of of justice was meted out for the crimes that were committed. And and yet the fact that in that moment, Hall's character, he knows. And he lets us know that he knows. And there's kind of a quiet strength in that moment that I think really bespeaks the the kind of of longing that you were talking about. The fact that, you know, real world justice you know, justice within the justice system of of our society, that doesn't always happen. But there is justice, it exists, and there's right and there's wrong. If we talk about lots of Fincher's films looking for a true north, I think this film finds it, and I really appreciate it for that. I also really like how Fincher just really evokes the accumulation of time and years that happen while the, these investigations are all going on. One of my favorite shots is the the time lapse of these buildings getting built. They're building up over time as years and years pass and the, the trail kind of goes cold. And I think that that makes the the ultimate ending to this picture all the more satisfying because we have been able to feel the the accumulated weight of all of that time i think it's uh it, it's a really strong picture for all the reasons you said and uh, maybe i miss it did you say is it where's it on yours number three uh yeah it's uh my number three it was going okay. to be number two but you know then panic room happened and oh, well, you know sacrifices had to be made <laughs> we had we had to cut something you know this also kind of brings to mind um what we haven't talked about so far and it's fincher's use of of visual effects and i think the reason why a lot of people don't talk about special effects in his movies is because sometimes they're just almost invisible if you go back and look at the behind the scenes for zodiac there's this scene and i believe it's the second murder scene where they're out on a san francisco street there's all these buildings and much of the backdrop is blue screen and we could we'd never know that and even in something like benjamin button where we see the visual effects a little bit more the special effects a little bit more uh fincher just does a fantastic job of weaving these effects into his stories and you just don't even know that they're there and 
perhaps that's why people don't talk about it a lot because he's just just talented in that way. And I, mm-hmm. I mentioned it here just because, you know, you wouldn't think of this film as having a lot of visual effects, but there are a bunch. You just can't see them. I guess that would probably be a good segue into talking about one of the best special effects in all of Fincher's filmography. I think I think we have to talk about the Winklevoss twins now. I, I think we, <laughs> that the time has come, Wade. <laughs> yeah, so that's my number one film, and it shouldn't the be Winkle a surprise. <laughs> it shouldn't be a surprise. Somebody like, what happened to the other Army Hammer? Did someone kill him is this a is this a prestige type situation you know what happened um no he is uh he is one person playing both of those roles yeah social network is my number one feature film from 2010 i you know i've talked about this film a great deal recently uh, and i think i would do best to point our listeners to episode 237 where it placed number three on my favorite films of the decade list i do however want to point out one aspect of the movie that I failed to mention thus far, and that's Fincher's uncanny ability to shoot, frame, and block dialogue. I would encourage listeners to turn the movie on and to mute the audio during one of the numerous conversations that make up this film. Notice the power dynamics embedded in the position of the actors and the camera. And the same could be said about most, if not all, of Fincher's films. I'm thinking particularly Zodiac, which we just talked about, and Seven. There's this great scene in Seven where uh, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt, they're talking to their supervisor, and just, just mute it and watch the camera angles. Notice the power kind of shifting around the room. And we get that here. The dialogue is is pretty good and this is a great collaboration between aaron sorkin and fincher fincher knows how to rein sorkin's dialogue in so much is being said all at once and the camera helps us to visually uh put together these relationships and and what's going on and and saying that i i should give a shout out to the director of photography of this film uh jeff Cronenweth and editors Kirk Baxter and Angus Wall. And they have worked on a number of Fincher's movies. And I just, I think it's amazing. And perhaps that's just Fincher's background in music. He just understands the the rhythm and the move of these um, long scenes with characters just kind of talking, but it works like gangbusters in the social network. Yeah, I mean, I I think I had this movie at my number 10 on uh, my favorite f- uh, films of the decade on episode 237. So yeah, listeners can probably go back to that one and listen to us both talk at more length about the themes of this film and what we liked so much about it. I do think that Fincher does such a great job of evoking the, this chilliness uh, to with, with his filmmaking. So we, Kubrick is a director who often gets talked about as being a chilly filmmaker, a filmmaker who kind of just lets his camera observe and doesn't really try to manipulate the audiences on, a, on an emotional level as much as uh, a filmmaker like Steven Spielberg does, for instance. I think Fincher falls more towards the Kubrick side of things than the Spielberg side of things, not necessarily because his style is as austere maybe as Kubrick's is, but just in the way that he is able to use the camera to record human behavior in a way that 
is is engaging and and is very clear-eyed about who these people are and almost why the way why they are the way they are and i think ultimately the social network is a really great character study of lots of these characters i feel like i know some of the characters in the social network better than i know like real life uh public figures and and you know i don't know these public figures personally i don't know these fictional characters personally but there's there's a way that Fincher is able to capture these fictional characters' interactions and to direct his actors in a way that he can capture those actions. The way that he does that just really brings you into the events in a way that is not manipulative. It does feel like he's kind of recording the stuff as it happens, but it's also stylized in a way that that just makes it so just basically entertaining. That that combination of psychological realism and just stylishness, I guess, is really apparent in the social network and fully merits its place at number one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could go on and on about this film, and I've seen it so many times that I was still disappointed because I wanted to watch it again before the podcast episode, and I just didn't have a chance to do that. Listeners, that's our ranking of the films of David Fincher. We'll see where Mank ends up when that releases a little bit later this year. We'd love to hear about your favorite Fincher films. Make sure to tweet us at cbelievepod, at cbelievepod, or shoot us an email, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Maybe you're going to be like some other people. I know a number of people who've watched Christopher Nolan movies because of the podcast. They just kind of got excited. I've known people who um, have gone through some Kelly Reichert films because of the podcast. So if you are going to hit up some David Fincher movies, uh, make sure to let us know what you think about those, which ones you end up watching. Kevin, we've reached the end of the episode and we have, you know, I think ever since the conception of this podcast, usually offer a recommendation to our listeners of something from the world of television and or film. We've kind of tweaked that as of late. We know a lot of people are streaming right now, and we want to kind of update people on what we're watching, what we've enjoyed that's available, widely available to people who would like to catch up on something from the comfort of their own couch. Kevin, what would you like to recommend that's currently streaming to our listeners? Uh, so, uh, I was really looking forward to seeing the, uh, HBO film Bad Education, directed by Corey Finley. It just released, um, on the service, uh, this past weekend. It's, a uh, based on a true story about, uh, an embezzlement scandal that happened in a Long Island public school system. It stars, uh, Hugh Jackman as the superintendent of the school system and Allison Janney as his right-hand woman. And the film kind of follows them step-by-step step as their malfeasance slowly becomes uncovered to, to the rest of the world through the efforts of a crusading student journalist, which this actually happened. The school newspaper was the one to break the corruption scandal and lead to the downfall of these characters. And I mean, it's it's always satisfying to kind of watch one of these based on true story stories to see the um the corruption or the 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 scandal uh of 
these people kind of fall apart before our eyes. There's kind of a satisfaction seeing them, seeing a bad thing happen and then see the comeuppance for that bad action. But what I appreciated about this film was just uh, how methodical it is and how also it's not, it's, it's filmmaking that doesn't really lend itself to caricature as easily as a story like this could maybe could. Hugh Jackman does a great job of portraying a, a complex person who turns to who engages in the actions he does for understandable reasons, even though those reasons are obviously bad. Uh, I was also interested in it because Corey Finley directed Thoroughbreds, uh, which was that uh, that was his debut starring Olivia Cook and Anya Taylor-Joy, and I just I found a lot to love about that film, so I was interested to see what he did next. This uh, Bad Education isn't as stylish as Thoroughbreds was, which I was a little bit disappointed by, but it's still a, a, a good time and a, a good watch if you're if you have the HBO service. So that's that's streaming right now. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in seeing that film, and I I know a lot of people seem to enjoy it. Last year, and kind of just waiting around for HBO to release it, and this is yeah, it seems like a, a really good time. So I'm definitely going to try to check that out. We we've got our Wes Anderson uh, episode next week, so I feel like I've got a good deal to kind of work through, and hopefully, when I have some space, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get to Bad Education. So the the new streaming television show, it's not a film, it's a show that I'm watching right now, is the ESPN documentary, The Last Dance. Now, a number of our listeners, you might have heard about this. This actually tracks the Chicago Bulls and the final championship of their Michael Jordan, Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen dynasty. And I appreciate this documentary because not only do we get to see some incredible behind the scenes footage not only do we get to hear from these incredible players and their coach phil jackson uh, but we also get to relive the moments that took them to this final season and the editing cuts back and forth between michael jordan's early career and the present as well as the early careers of scotty pippen and Dennis Rodman. And what I appreciate about this television show, just a couple of things that stick out. One is the montages. We get some great montages that's coupled with music from that particular era. I think my favorite so far is a montage with Dennis Rodman. And when I played basketball, was not good offensively. What little I could do was defensively and in rebounds. And there is this incredible, uh, I think it's a minute, two minutes long, where we just get to see Dennis Rodman put his body on the line and get those rebounds and uh, block shots and and fly across the court to pass the ball to Michael Jordan. I mean, it's it's really a great montage. We get a number of those um, throughout this television show, and I think too as I'm I'm thinking about this series, uh, four episodes have been released. Uh, there are going to be ten total. This is a great example of the fleetingness of life and especially the fleetingness of our athletic ability. We get to see Michael Jordan's early career. Uh, we also get to see what is going to be the the end of it or, or close to the end. He plays a couple of years um, for the Wizards. But that doesn't last forever. Uh, you can be at the top of your game, but you won't always be there. And it takes more than just one person to create 
a dynasty, even a championship team. So it's a really fascinating look, just the story behind it. Um, but uh, at the same time, I think there's a lot of ideas embedded there that that really speak to me. Now, you might not be a basketball fan. Uh, some of our listeners might not. But my wife, Priscilla, she is she's not a huge fan. She doesn't watch a lot of basketball, but she's been enjoying this series. So it might be something for everyone here. Uh, just depends. Yeah, I w- I've never been much of a sports guy, but at least when I was growing up, the closest I came to being a sports fan was being a fan of Jordan's Bulls team, you know, that whole era. Um, just because the things that that team could do and the things that Jordan himself could do were just so amazing that you kind of got sucked into it even if basketball wasn't really your thing so i've been hearing great things about this this series all over the place and i can't wait to get a chance to sit down with it myself because it really just does sound like a great way to go back and and relive that amazing time in the sport yeah uh, it's um it's one of those things where it's it's sad because it just it doesn't last, um, but those players and Phil Jackson, uh, just really an amazing time in, in sports history, even if you're not a fan of the Chicago Bulls. And so it's a, it's definitely a, a fascinating series. Listeners, we want to thank you so much for checking out this episode of Seeing and Believing. Of course, we've really enjoyed our auteur series. We are going to conclude next week with a look at the films of Wes Anderson. That's going to be a lot of fun because traditionally, Kevin, I've been somewhat cold on Anderson. We'll kind of see what happens as I revisit some of his movies. Thank you for checking out this week's episode. Listeners, it's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and believing we'll see you later you have been listening to seeing and believing an official production of the christ and pop culture podcast network please rate and review the show in itunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network theme music by alexander osborne and Lindsay miz used under creative commons license 3.0